Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we'll hear from Penny Fitzgerald about her working life in the male-dominated automotive industry in the 1970s and 80s. But first, some union news. Last week, the federal government introduced two aged care bills delivering on election commitments in relation to 24-7 nurses, more time for carers to care, transparency of funding and capping home care administration fees. Following years of campaigning by United Workers Union members in aged care, the decision of the incoming Labor government to prioritise these reforms is a victory for the hard work and persistence of aged care union members across the country. Australia's aged care workers have held up a broken system through the darkest days of the pandemic and their commitment to resident care and advocacy for quality, dignified care for older Australians has been on display for the whole country to see. Prior to the election, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told Australia that fixing aged care was a Labor priority and the introduction of these reforms demonstrates this government's commitment to reform. The UWU welcomes this legislative reform, which is now being delivered amongst the first pieces of legislation introduced in the first sitting of the new parliament. Aged care worker Mandy Smith said, Having more time to care means I can finally give the sort of quality care to my residents that they deserve, and I don't have to go home feeling exhausted and guilty about all the ways they missed out. Last week... News.com.au reported that road workers, construction crew and transport staff went on strike in New South Wales for the first time this century as the union continues their pay dispute with the state government. Hundreds of workers from 69 depots walked off the job for 24 hours as of 6am on Thursday. They helped maintain some of the city's major highways, roads and bridges including the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The frustrated workers gathered outside the front gates of major depots like the Sydney Harbour Bridge and Civic Park. The Australian Workers' Union said the strikes were over the state government putting a cap on their wages while inflation continued to surge. These workers don't take action lightly. They haven't been on strike in decades. The reason they are persisting this time is that they just can't cop a pay cut, Australian Workers' Union New South Wales Branch Vice President Cameron Wright said. These are the men and women who have gone out there during bushfires and freak floods to keep New South Wales moving. During the pandemic, they put on their work gear and went out into an uncertain world while the rest of us were locked down. They don't deserve a pay cut. If Dominic Perrottet and his government don't sit down and negotiate something more reasonable, then we're going to see a lot more strike action than this. Planned strikes were cancelled earlier this month when the New South Wales Industrial Relations Commission issued orders to halt industrial action for a fortnight because their work was deemed essential. The unions told Transport New South Wales they would make themselves available to respond to genuine emergency situations during the 24-hour walk-off to keep the general public safe. 
PACTU and broader union movement has welcomed the record number of First Nations parliamentarians in the 47th Parliament and called upon the federal government last week to take this opportunity to further the progress of First Nations workers. The union movement is calling for meaningful consultation with elders and community members on country with the purpose of creating a replacement program for the Community Development Program, CDP, that adequately addresses the employment crisis in remote communities. They're also calling for the creation of meaningful, safe and adequately paid jobs on country. This includes ensuring decent workplace conditions, work cover and workers' compensation and superannuation and ensuring that any employment program must lead to permanent employment. The union movement will also unequivocally support a First Nations voice to Parliament. ACTU Indigenous Officer Lara Watson said, This diverse Parliament is an opportunity for positive changes and gives us a chance to begin addressing the injustices faced by First Nations workers. The CDP is a racist, punitive job program that clearly targets Indigenous communities. It is time to bin it and replace it with something fit for purpose and led by communities. The former Morrison government extended the CDP in its current iteration until 2024, and we need to make sure that that doesn't remain the case. On the 22nd of July 2022, the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia handed down its decision in Retail and Fast Food Workers Union Incorporated versus Woolworths Group Limited, the Woolworths Union Busting Case. It brought to an end the long-running fight by RAFU to hold union busters in Woolworths Group to account for their attacks on the union and their members. The case involved senior management at Woolworths Group targeting RAFU delegate Lauren Dyer for raising a dispute about a serious car park safety issue. The litigation exposed Woolworths kept a secret RAFU tracker to record issues involving the union. The litigation also exposed that the store manager had immediately involved the SDA to help him suppress the safety campaign. RAFU has been told that many workers who supported the campaign were threatened by SDA officials that their jobs were under threat unless they apologised to the store manager. In response to the case, Woolworths Group has promised to recognise the standing of RAFU as a union of workers, the freedom of association of its members and the right of RAFU to represent their members. Woolworths Group has communicated this to the store managers and HR people services staff and apologised in writing to Lauren and paid her $3,000 in compensation. Obviously, RAFU is not so naive as to believe Woolworths Group will suddenly change and treat workers with dignity and respect. They will continue to actively pursue Woolworths Group, the business partner of SDA, wherever and whenever it attacks workers. When the CEPU wrapped up EBA negotiations with Australia Post last year, members overwhelmingly voted in favour of the agreement, breaking records in both voter participation and levels of support. At the time of voting, the nation's leading economists had predicted inflation to rise to 1.75% by the end of 2021 and to peak at 2.5% by the first quarter of 2023. Members had overwhelmingly supported their EBA in good faith, expecting that the agreed wage increases would ensure their families' economic positions would not worsen but improve. More so, members had campaigned hard for a fitting economic reward off the back of working through some of their most trying times during the worst pandemic our world has seen in 100 years. However, by November, inflation had already hit 2.75%. As economists scrambled to adjust their forecasting, the union sought urgent discussions with Australia Post around wages. 
particularly the union was seeking a solution that ensured members and their families would not be sent backwards. To Australia Post's credit, negotiations were quick and fruitful and an additional commitment was quickly secured. Specifically, this new commitment ensured that wage rises would increase by the Consumer Price Index, or the 3% provided by the agreement, whichever was greater in the current quarter. In accordance with the agreement reached between the Union and Australia Post last year, the scheduled wage movement payable under the new EBA in the first pay period of September will see an increase of 6.1%. This important outcome guarantees that members will not be left behind being unable to keep up with the cost of leaving as inflation soars. This was an incredible outcome to be reached outside the bargaining period and one which would certainly not have been secured without the strong density of our union's membership across Australia Post. Each and every member is critical to maintaining and building the strength of our union. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Now we'll hear stories from Penny Fitzgerald, a worker in the automotive industry who started selling cars as a teenager and excelled in her work in spite of often rigid ideas about gender. My name is Penny Fitzgerald and I live in East Gippsland, Victoria. Thanks Penny. I'm really interested in learning about your experience as a working woman over the years, especially because you were coming into a male-dominated industry back in the 60s selling cars. So could you tell us, how did you first get into that? Yes, I first started selling motor vehicles when I was 14 and 11 months. I had a special exemption from school because I was only one month short of 15 and my father had gone into hospital and he wasn't up to running the business, whereas I actually could do that job at that age. We had a secretary and she was very good too, and I could sell motor vehicles. So it was a family business, was it? Yes, my father, he started selling Datsun in the 1960s, and then it changed to Nissan later on. But I was always around motor vehicles, and my grandmother she had a petrol station and ran the petrol bowsers and she had 24-hour service. She just rang a bell if you needed fuel for a motor vehicle. So she slept at the back area. So if anyone came in and they needed fuel for their car, even if it was 2.30 in the morning, they'd press a bell and my grandmother would wake up. They'd go out and serve them petrol or diesel if need be. So in the early days, I actually helped my grandmother and I served petrol from the age of eight years old but she'd keep an eye on me to make sure I was okay and I used to love seeing the customers it was really lovely because sometimes they'd give me a halfpenny tip half a penny and I would put that aside so that I could save that to put in the bank what were you saving up for Well, I put the money in the bank because I learnt when I was very young, if you put a little bit aside, it grows to a little bit more and then you can buy something you may need one day. 
So you started off when your father was unwell and you started selling the cars. How was that like? What was it like when you had to all of a sudden be the face of the business and be in front of the customers and stuff? What was that like? Well, it was just natural to me because I'd seen my dad and been out with him while he was selling utilities to the farmers uh, around our district and I'd go to the shows. So it was just second nature that... I just took on this responsibility, I guess, and I loved speaking to the customers, to people. It was just so interesting. They were so lovely. And when you're a youngster, you just love speaking to people that are older than you. Yeah, that sounds... I I can't believe that you were only 14 and you were just chatting away to all these people and, and selling cars. So do you remember selling your first car? Well, actually, I don't, believe it or not. It was so long ago. But I remember one man, he used to come down to Marimula. He was a businessman from Melbourne, and he was building apartments and uh, new-style housing in Marimula. And he found it so fascinating that someone so young, by this time I would have been 15, was selling motor vehicles, that he came down and he bought some utilities off me which is a a ute, in other words. One-ton utes, they were. So how long did you do that for, run the family business? Well, when Dad ended up out of hospital, it was just like he was in charge and I was there selling cars too. So I just continued selling cars with my dad, motor vehicles, utilities. The farmers used to buy vehicles off us. Many people bought vehicles off us and... The oil industry was just opening up in sale. So we had people that had come over from America that were starting in diving businesses and other businesses and they came and bought vehicles off us, which was really a great start. So as I was selling motor vehicles, I'd meet people from all walks of life, from people that worked in timber mills that used to mainly buy the second-hand cheaper vehicles and people who owned businesses internationally and also people like doctor's wives that played golf that wanted to have a sports car and if one had a sports car then the next person wanted the same car as they did and the next that's the way it was then. And uh, did you get paid at that time? Well I was paid $50 a week. We converted to dollars because dollars and cents were changed in 1966. So I was paid $50 a week, no commissions. And the secretary said to my dad, once I turned 15, a bit later on, that I should be paid commission because other people were paid commission. So he decided at that stage that he would pay me $10 commission for every car on top of the $50. After a while, you decided to leave the family business and work for another company. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did you even get your foot in the door? Well, I saw a job advertisement in Morwell and I thought, well, I will go in and see how I go. And they wanted female staff. This was in 1981 and it was a Ford dealership and they were just having the run out of Ford XDs then. We had the last one on the floor and they were moving to Ford XEs. Now, the man who owned the business, he wanted one saleswoman at least. So 
I went in, went for an interview and I got the job because I had a good reputation in the motor industry and I was a top salesperson selling 30 motor vehicles per month with Nissan but I was working seven days a week at that stage. I would work from eight o'clock until seven or eight at night. I was very enthusiastic in my early days of working as many hours as I could. And how was it going from the family business into such a male-dominated industry? Well, I didn't find a great deal of difference because I'd always thought that a male wasn't necessarily any better than me because I could sell motor vehicles and it was the numbers so I could sell motor vehicles. If I could do that and make money without ripping people off and being honest and listening to what they wanted and caring enough and considerate enough to think, well, I'm not going to sell a two-door car to a mother who has to put a baby seat in the back. She needs it. I would need a four-door when she's actually looking for a four-door. I wouldn't talk her into a two-door because I feel that would be irresponsible. In some ways, we had a little bit more compassion than males. Some salesmen just don't care as long as they get a sale. So I listened to what people wanted and I was considerate of what people wanted. And they seemed to buy cars off me and bring family back to me to see me because they realised that I was straightforward and I wouldn't sell them a ute if they wanted a station wagon. Yes, trustworthy. Mm. So I I just wouldn't sell them something maybe that we had on the floor because I was told I had to. If I had to order it in and that's what they wanted, that's what I'd do. So I did have the independence to make decisions and feel very comfortable about it. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and social justice issues on your local community radio station. And uh, how was the pay in comparison to the men in in those jobs outside of the family business? Well, the pay was uh, very good. I earned more because it was commission-based and I had a wage. I was given a car with fuel. Yes, I had the same wage as the men and I had the same rights and conditions uh, as the men for commissions and if I sold more than them, I may make more in a month than they did. There was product that I could have sold to people but I would hesitate to because I thought it was a rip-off whereas the men would get more commission mainly on that product. But I believe that was not right because most of the cars that came over had rust protection on them or a lot of the vehicles and people would sell them this package of paint protection, rust protection. It was a whole package where they really only needed maybe the paint protection. So I wasn't worrying about my commission just to get paid for selling something that I did not believe was right. But we also had bonuses, and sometimes we'd have a bonus, the first person that did a finance contract, which we'd send to the finance manager, or the first person that sold a car for the day would have a bonus, and that would be usually a cash bonus, or something we chose. And I actually chose 
time, half a day off in comparison to the money, whereas most of the men I noticed would choose the money and to work, but I sometimes needed just that relaxation time. When I worked at the Ford dealer in the 80s, my hours were, for example, 8.30 to 5.30. If you worked on a Saturday, they were the hours. Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 6. But if a customer you just walked in at 5 to 6, you would stay with that customer until you had shown them whatever they wanted to see or driven the car that they wanted to see. And if you were the last one to go, you'd lock up because you had a key to the showroom. And An example being that one day I had just locked the door and I was the last one out and it was probably about 6.30 at night. And a customer just walked in and he was walking up and looking in the window. And so I didn't walk past him. I thought, I'll stop and say hello, whereas some people just want to get out and run for it. <laughs> I stopped, spoke to the gentleman and asked what he you know, wanted. He said, everyone else is closed. I've just been to a place they closed and the guy walked straight past me. So he'd come to Morble to have a look at the Fords. And so I reopened the showroom, which some people would just say, oh, we're closed, you'll have to come back. So I opened the showroom and showed him the cars we had in the showroom. Well, the gentleman bought two cars for his business and traded one in through me being pleasant and realising what we had to sell in there. And he thought I was going out of my way, but to me that's just a normal thing. So I spent time showing him the vehicle. The next day drove the vehicle to his house in Terelgan, showed his wife and she had to drive. So he bought the two vehicles off me. He was a dentist and then he decided I'll buy one for my father. An automatic Ford laser gear for him because that would suit him. And at the time, he traded in an XW, I will never forget this, XW Ford Falcon GS, where it was a manual. The gears were on the floor and it was immaculate. It was a pale blue with a couple of little black stripes on it, which the GS model had. Now, that car today is worth a lot more than a Ford laser. It was in such beautiful condition. It went on the lot. It sold to the first customer. We had many people wanted to buy it. They saw it and it, oh, just a beautiful car. Now I'm going back to when I was selling Datsun Nissan in the 70s. Now I'd go to dealer meetings, not a lot, just a few dealer meetings. And when a new model was released, I'd go down to the dealer meeting with my father and we'd have the vehicles to see and we could drive them. One time we went to Sandown. By this time, I must admit I was 18, going on 19, had P-plates, and I bought myself a Datsun 240Z Sports. I'd saved up to pay cash for the car. Now, I went to the dealer meeting, and some people were driving the cars around on the track. I'd drive the vehicles around on the track at Sandown Racetrack, seeing how they handled see how they went, coupes, sedans and in the end the dealers sort of got together and we decided somehow it came up that one man had a Mercedes V8 and I had my Datsun 240Z. On the time trials we didn't know which car would go fastest around Sandown because the Datsun 240Z weighed 20 hundredweight and even though it had a six-cylinder motor and 
130 brake horsepower. It was a lighter vehicle. The Mercedes was a V8, weighed 30 hundredweight. It was a heavier vehicle. So when it came to the bends, it had to slow down. So I had more power to get around there. Now, if we had a straight track, I'm sure the Mercedes would have won on a straight track on the time trial. But I pushed this little 240Z and went around and I beat the time of the Mercedes-Benz just by a few seconds. It was absolutely fantastic. But looking back in retrospect, I would never do that again. As young people and as myself when I was young back then, we'd sometimes take more risks. Yeah, and you really thought, oh, you were infallible. Back in the early days, they didn't have a speed limit on the highway either. So many people would drive along the highway out in the countryside at 100 miles an hour, which really the braking systems on cars were not good enough to handle that. And that's why even there are a lot of accidents and a lot of fatalities, unfortunately, in some of the powerful cars because the braking systems were not anywhere near the braking systems now. They weren't good enough and... You may remember the Ford GTHOs. There are many accidents in some of those really macho cars uh, because they would more or less float along the road at enormous speeds. And in our area, between Sale and Bensdale, you just had narrow highway and a lot of trees along the sides of roads. But it was a great time. So you got married at some point and... How did you manage your household with your husband and and how did that work? Well, I was married in 1985. My husband worked full-time and I worked full-time and my husband David accepted that I loved my work and it was just part of our relationship, I guess, that he knew that I would be going off to work and he'd be going off to work. He'd get up a lot earlier than me and he'd have to take off from home at 6.30 in the morning to get to work and I would have to be at work at 8.30 so I left a little bit later but David would be home when I came home so he would usually actually cook tea. He was a really good cook. He was a better cook than me (laughs) and then I'd arrive home at different times depending on how many customers were around I'd ring him and say I'm on my way and then someone would walk in and then I'd ring and say no I'm not because he'd put tea on I do remember the vegetables being overcooked (laughs) quite a bit (laughs) but uh, so it worked out really well he was just the most wonderful man and so we just worked in together really That's it for Stick Together this week Thanks for listening and thanks to Penny Fitzgerald for telling her story. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.